If you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 119 for our reading from God's Word, continuing to make our way through that most impressive psalm, Psalm 119. We'll take a look at verses 41 through 48. Our participation in the Lord Jesus Christ, even in his exaltation, as Paul wonderfully and bewilderingly remarks, that we have been raised up with him and seated with him at the right hand of glory, means that we now have a new relationship to the law. For in his humiliation, Christ was a servant under the law, but as exalted to the right hand, he is now Lord over the law, as it were. And sharing in his life, we too are no longer under the law and participate in his new creation life as those who have been redeemed from the curse of the law, such that now when we look upon the law, we see from that posture of the regenerate heart a vision of loveliness, yearning for the righteousness which it sets forth and its paths in which the Lord Jesus Christ leads us now for his name's sake. And this is, by and large, what we hear on display in Psalm 119. It is a love letter to the law, as a vision of the loveliness of God on display, his righteous and holy character, into which we are now being transformed by the grace that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And if you'd like, you can turn in the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 1. Continuing through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which you can conveniently find in the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnal. We'll be looking at the content of Shorter Catechism question 23, which I'll read following the reading from God's word. But I'll invite you to join me first in prayer. Father, how delightful and satisfying is your word uh, to have uh, before us uh, the riches of your mind set forth clearly, your thoughts, which are so precious to us, your will, 
that which you have revealed unto us for our good. All of which comes to us now from the most excellent hand of the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who reveals you most wonderfully, most excellently, and it is our Lord who is set forth in this written word, whom we long to see even now. And so we ask that you would do that which you have promised to do, to feed us, for we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. We have not made ourselves, we belong to you. And your glory is revealed in the gathering and the upbuilding of your people, which you are pleased to do by the hand and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, who uses his word and his spirit to instruct us, to correct us, to retrieve us, to form us and to fashion us into that most lovely and excellent image on display in the beloved Son. We ask that you would attend our time now under your word with this most excellent blessing. For we ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. And then Westminster Shorter Catechism 23 asks, What offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ, as our Redeemer, executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. I'm not sure what you remember when you think back on your days in high school. I remember a lot of things from my days uh, from high school, but most suitable to this introduction. I remember uh, ridiculous t-shirts. It was like when you went to school in high school, you, you you'd basically revel in wearing the most ridiculous t-shirt that you could find. There was a sort of pride in it, or maybe it was just the circles that I ran in. It's like the most obscure t-shirt you could find at a thrift store sort of sets you apart. <laughs> there was one t-shirt, I remember it vividly. Uh, perhaps you encountered a similar variation in your high school. Uh, it said, Jesus for president. Did you encounter this t-shirt in high school? I didn't know enough at the time to try and pull the wearer aside and say, they kind of tried that once, it didn't work. <laughs> In fact, it led to him being crucified. 
as silly and misguided as it is, uh, there is an element, a grain of truth that I'd like to redeem once more for the purpose of this introduction. What do you think of when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ? I think there's a certain vulnerability in thinking of him in um, remarkably and appropriately um, intimate and informal categories. Um, Jesus, you'll see this on bumper stickers, right? Jesus is my bestie. Uh, Jesus is my co-pilot. And again, there's a a grain of truth to those things. Jesus Christ himself says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. And so there is a remarkable appropriateness to that. There's also the sense in which uh, Jesus Christ is the husband of the church, which is an incredibly intimate designation. What Westminster 23 sets before us is perhaps a strand of understanding our Lord that can get lost, particularly in our day and age, which eschews distances itself from formalities. Anything whiffing of a formal nature is designated as insincere. It's designated as somehow inauthentic or uh, less than ideal. How often do you think of the fact that Jesus Christ saves you by virtue of an office that he holds? Not entirely unlike the office of president. It's a formal role. It's a formal position. We think of him in terms of these intimate relational categories that we have with him, and that is appropriate and right. But what Westminster 23 sets before us is that he is not just a casual redeemer. (laughs) He is an official redeemer. That this position that he occupies is one that he has not come up with on his own, nor is it something that he seized for himself, but something to which he was appointed, the discharge of which abounds to the glory of the one who designed the office, appointed him to the office, and is reflected in Christ's discharge of the office, which incidentally is your salvation and mine. So in many ways we can ask, is Christ faithful to his office. And if we answer yes to that, then we may say, well, then our salvation is secure because it is the discharge of his office which is our salvation. So this evening, we consider that Jesus Christ is no casual redeemer, that Jesus Christ is a perfect redeemer, and that Jesus Christ is an accomplished redeemer. First, Jesus Christ, no casual redeemer. What is an office? That's how the question opens. What offices does Christ execute as our redeemer? What offices do we even expect that would be appropriate to a redeemer? Like we said, we have certain notions of office, certain notions of an authorized position, but likely they're not quick to jump to mind when we think of our Lord, when we think of Jesus, of Nazareth. So let's define office. 
An office is a divinely appointed position with specific functions and duty to which God appoints and equips for the discharge of. There's a number of elements in that, isn't there? God designs the position, God defines the position, and God appoints to the position. And we see this all in Hebrews chapter 5. If you'd like, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 and following. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And so we can use this passage as a window into what an office is. Here, the specific office is that of a high priest, that of a priest. And you can hear it throughout the passage. Men didn't come up with this. God came up with this. God designed this. It has specific functions that are non-negotiable as far as men are concerned. It's not as if a priest under the Old Testament got into the position and thought, you know what, this could use some renovation. I don't like where this company is heading. Let's get innovative. Let's get creative. I feel like we could do a lot more for our public persona if we implemented a social media campaign, if you will. <laughs> no, one was confined, one was bound to the parameters of the position. Why? Because they were divinely sketched out. God appointed the office, but not just that. He appoints the man to the office. Every priest chosen from among men is appointed. And then at the end, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ. You see here the integral components to that notion of office, to that notion of a formal position in the setting forth of the position by God, in the defining of the responsibilities and the duties of the position by God, but also the installation of God's man in that position for the responsible discharge of those responsibilities. So then when we consider the history of God's people stretching back under the Old Testament, what offices do we see there? What offices come to be associated with this one figure, the Christ? Well, you can start with Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 and verse 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet 
like you, from among their brothers, and I will put my words into his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The first office that we see arising in God's history with his people is the office of a prophet. That God is not going to leave his people, his covenant partners, to grope about in the darkness to try to discern the will of heaven. He is going to send his servants to truly make known his will, to truly make known his word. This passage was taken to be a prophecy of the coming Messiah, of the one who, like Moses, indeed greater than Moses, would stand face to face with God, indeed in the bosom of the Father, and make known God's word to God's people. So the first office that we anticipate, and indeed that gets associated with the coming Christ, is the office of a prophet. We can look also at Psalm 110, 1 through 4. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth will be yours. The Lord has spoken and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We see the confluence of these two orders, these two offices in this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, who was both priest of God Most High, but also king of Salem. His name means my king is righteous, and as king of Salem, he was king of peace. This confluence of the two offices of both king and priest glimpsed in this mysterious figure and here in this messianic text used to frame what God's people were to expect of the Messiah, one who would wonderfully be both priest and king, fulfilling the office of a priest, representing man in God's presence, but also fulfilling that office of a king, bringing God's righteous rule onto earth and bringing human subjects into the blessedness of heaven, as it were, where the angels do his will in an instance. And this, indeed, is our blessedness. And so the Old Testament itself invites us to consider the coming Redeemer, the coming Savior, under the specifics of these offices, under these formal positions, to which servants of old were equipped and appointed, all of whom anticipated that most excellent appointment of the one known before the foundation of the world, appointed before the foundation of the world, who most perfectly executes this as our Redeemer, prophet, priest, and king. It is the Lord Jesus Christ in his appointment unto and fulfillment of the office of Christ, the office of the Christ, exercising the offices of prophet, priest, and king, which is our eternal salvation. Now, there are many encouragements that Scripture heaps upon our hearts 
to beckon us to draw near unto Christ and to find in him that most perfect and sufficient provision for all of our needs. And the doctrine of the offices of Christ and his faithful discharge of them is yet another encouragement. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners, not as a casual endeavor, not as something he thought might be a nice thing to try his hand at as a hobby, but as a formal appointment by God, as a divine institution set forth for the sure redemption of God's people. There is great encouragement to our faith in this, for we are left with the question that we started with. Is Christ faithful in this office? The answer is, most assuredly, he is. Well then, beloved, our salvation is secure, for this is what he was appointed to do as the Christ. Even human appointments unto office are not taken casually. Our earthly existence is full of elevated offices that come with remarkable responsibilities and duties such that solemn ceremonies and solemn oaths attend them. Now, human beings, wretched as we are, often do not pay attention to the gravity attending these oaths and ceremonies. But nonetheless, even in the register of human behavior, there is an understanding that it is no light matter to disregard one's duties and responsibilities occupying an office. In fact, such can be some of the grossest crimes a land can know. How much more a divinely appointed office and how certain such an excellent one is to discharge faithfully that office. This is the sure foundation upon which our salvation rests. But we can also point out that the notion of Christ as a formal redeemer, as an official redeemer, as one who is occupying an office in terms of the salvation that he brings home to our hearts and minds, this must lend itself to the appropriate weight and tenor of our love and trust and loyalty to Jesus Christ. Now it is true, I have a great love for my friends. I can look at men with whom I've grown up, I've known for years, and they've been faithful brothers in the Lord. I can look at them with love and with trust. But there is no formal bond between us, as it were. There is nothing binding of a nature that is not relational that attends that bond told you I've been reading the once and future king. I'm kind of on a King Arthur kick. Guinevere loved Arthur, though she was unfaithful to him. That, that's really hard for me. That's a really hard part. I don't want to spoil the Arthur story for you, but Guinevere is not faithful to Arthur. <laughs> but set that aside for the purpose of this illustration. She still loves him, and there's a conflict in her. But she loves him as her husband, and yet he is still her king. That relationship between the king and the queen exists on both coordinates. 
Arthur is her husband and they exist in that intimate capacity, but he is also her king. Her loyalty to him is not just that of a wife to a husband. Her loyalty is bond as that of a subject to her king, lending a layer of gravity to that bond which exists between them. King Arthur instituted a round table such that his knights might not be bound up with their feuds of jealousy, and he himself stood among them. But there was only one king. There was only one to whom all had to bow the knee and give an account as they returned from their various exploits, and it was Arthur. Jesus Christ is our king. Yes, he is our husband, and he has taken us to himself, and we enjoy him in a pure and intimate capacity as we are one with him, in union with him, but he is our king. He will always be our king. And he is a most blessed and beautiful king, one to whom swearing fealty, loyalty, is a privilege and a joy. The first time Lancelot met Arthur, he loved him. He saw in him a beautiful ideal, one which he delighted to consider laying down his life to advance. Such is the flicker of loveliness that exists between this most excellent king and those whom he has purchased at the cost of his own blood. For there is no king more worthy. But he's also a perfect redeemer. I'm not going to go into this point for long, not only because I already went too long in the first point, because sometimes I get carried away, but also because the next few questions are going to unpack this. Why these offices? Why prophet, priest, king. Is this just something that happened to galvanize in the course of Old Testament history that Jesus said, well, I just got to fulfill this. It's there, so I might as well fulfill it. No, the establishment of these offices is not arbitrary, but it is bound up with the image of God and its corruption in the fall. Mark Jones makes this point wonderfully. We see these three offices on display in their relatedness and concentration in one person only one other time, and it's in Adam. Adam is the only one who occupied all three offices as prophet, priest, and king. Think of the dominion that God entrusted to him. You shall have dominion over everything. That's king language. Think of the commission that he gave him with reference to the garden, to work and to protect the garden. That's priest language. The very same command is given to the priest. And consider the tree. Consider the trial that took place between the human person and the imposter God. What did it trade upon? Did God really say? The word of God. As the true prophet, it should have been God's word delivered in that moment. As the true priest, he should have been expelled as a foul intruder into that holy arena. And as God's prophet, priest, and king, execution should have come upon the head of that foul serpent in loyalty to God's holiness, righteousness, and fulfillment to that office which he had been entrusted. Instead, what happened? Failure, 
a world plunged into sin and misery, and we see now the human condition played along those very three lines. Human beings are deceived, devoid of truth, blind, deranged, ignorant. It is a matter of the intellect. But we're also estranged, unrighteous, befouled, expelled from that holy arena, and also tyrannized under the dominion of sin. Thus, we see the human plight, the human condition playing out along these three lines, devoid of truth, in need of a prophet, devoid of righteousness, in need of a priest, estranged from God, in need of a priest, in need of reconciliation, which is what a priest did, and subject to sin's tyranny, sin's power, and indeed the tyranny of the devil, in need of a king, a king to free us, a king to rule over us in holiness. Christ as prophet, priest, and king is the perfect provision for the specifics of our sinful plight which our first prophet, priest, and king had plunged us into. Charles Hodge says, We are enlightened in the knowledge of the truth. We are reconciled to God by the sacrificial death of the Son. We are delivered from the power of sin and Satan and introduced into the kingdom of God, all of which supposes that our Redeemer is to us at once prophet, priest, and king. This most excellent person is seen in his most excellent provision for our most pressing need and helplessness in how we have fallen because of sin. But notice how presenting him in terms of these office also shapes our expectations of what we are seeking from the Lord Jesus Christ. For these offices are the very things that he has come to discharge I think perhaps we approach Christ with a nebulous sense that, well, whatever we need or can think of at a given moment, he'll give us, please give me a good parking spot. Now, there's, again, a grain of truth in that the Lord cares about all your worries and concerns, big and small, but the presentation of our Savior in terms of these offices frames our expectation of Christ's ongoing work. We can expect him to continue to sanctify us in the truth. His word is truth. We can expect him to provide that cleansing of conscience through the sprinkling of his blood, which he alone can supply, for he alone possesses the righteousness and indeed offers himself as a righteous sacrifice in our stead. And he alone can free us from that sometimes seemingly unconquerable power of sin, that remarkably devastating influence of the world and the devil. It is Christ who promises that his reign will never fail and that our blessedness is enjoying that reign more and more as we grow in understanding. And last, we can consider that Christ is an accomplished Redeemer. And once more, I'll be brief on this. It closes by presenting these offices being carried out in two 
estates, two states. What is a state other than Indiana, Minnesota? No, a state is one's position or status with reference to the law. One's position or status with reference to the law. And thus we distinguish between two estates in Christ's career, commencing with the incarnation. The estate of humiliation, Galatians 4, for in the fullness of time God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, remarkable, that the Lord became a servant. The Lord of the law subjected himself to the law. But we also say that that was not the full story, that he subjected himself to the law to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, both in its positive requirement of obedience and in its passive requirement of suffering the penalty which we had incurred, this he fulfilled, such that his tenure under the law being one of success translated into an estate of exaltation, such that he is no longer servant, he is Lord. He is no longer under the law, but he is, as it were, over the law. And these states have attendant conditions. If a state is one's position or status with reference to the law, a condition is the subjective reality accompanying such a status. Does that make sense? An objective position vis-a-vis the law is a state. A condition is the subjective reality accompanying such an objective position. Thus, his tenure as servant was marked with lowliness, and not just lowliness, suffering. For not only was he under the law, but he was under the curse of the law in our stead. But his state of exaltation is attended with the condition of glory. One that was glimpsed here and there in his earthly ministry. You can think of the Mount of Transfiguration. One which remarkably John saw in the book of Revelation where he fell down as one who was dead. When he looked upon the Lord in whose bosom he had reclined during his earthly tenure. These two states highlight the trajectory of the one who was exalted with the Father before all worlds, who became subject to the law, founded upon himself as the word of God, fulfilling that tenure under the law, he became exalted to the right hand of God. And this is the trajectory that Paul marks out for us in that remarkable passage with which we're all familiar from Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You hear there the two states set forth in our question, the state of humiliation, the one who is exalted with the Father, becoming a servant lowly for us. For that's what he says when he says he became a servant, meaning he became a servant of the law, meaning he bound himself to discharge its requirement. A servant that led him not to a life of ease, but one of suffering, for the law generates curse. And indeed, the most egregious sufferings conceivable as he went to that terrible tree to fulfill the law, to lead us into righteousness, to lead us into glory. Thus, Paul says, therefore, he was highly exalted. He ties Christ's heavenly tenure. He ties that exalted estate to his success in that lowly estate, to the accomplishment which Christ achieved in that state of humiliation. Thus, we find yet another sure footing for our salvation. Is Christ exalted? He is. That means that our redemption has been accomplished. For Christ's exaltation is the declaration of the Father that indeed the Son is the faithful servant who has discharged the mission, who has fulfilled the law's demands. And so once more we ask if Christ has been successful in the accomplishment of redemption, will he not be successful in the application of redemption? For this is what he now delights to do. This indeed is what he is appointed to do as his office continues at the right hand of the Father, where he applies by his word and spirit that redemption which his earthly tenure accomplished on your behalf and mine. We have no informal redeemer. We have a perfect redeemer who has accomplished our salvation. Cling to him, for he is bringing this salvation to pass for us to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the riches of wisdom and power and goodness on display in your wise design, on display in the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the redemption that he has brought to pass. We do ask, Lord, that you would teach us more and more to esteem Christ rightly, for therein is our enjoyment of the blessedness which is ours we know that he will bring to pass all that he has purposed to bring to pass. Indeed, all that you have purposed to bring to pass, Lord. And yet, you still teach us to seek it. You still teach us to yearn for it, to ask for it. And so we would ask, Father, for the grace to seek it rightly with understanding and faith. For this is your good purpose. And we ask in Christ's name, amen.